0: Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor and your host, Michael Pryor. Welcome everyone to episode 11 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast, the first episode of Season 2. This one is all about King Prescon of Aniquist, known as Prescon the Forgettable. For those new listeners out there, Aniquist is the longest-lasting, most enduring realm in the world below the War in the Heavens, and I'm working one by one through its 117 monarchs as a sort of backbone to the podcast varying things every now and then with thematic episodes, episodes looking at other realms and episodes featuring various fascinating aspects of the world below the War in the Heavens. This season will take us up to the end of what's called the Foundation Period of Aniquist, ending with King the I, 335-339, to 339, the last monarch before the horror of the Nightmare Years, which we'll pick up again in Season 3. This first episode picks up on where we left off last season in the early third century, following on from King Sane I, the monarch who amassed a fabulous treasure that mysteriously disappeared and has never been seen again. And now we're about to enter a period variously known as the time of the youthful monarchs, or the Greenling years, for reasons which will become obvious. A heads up, the succession is going to get complicated in the next few episodes, and things are going to get a little bit dark, so hang on to your hats. Of course, a complicated succession makes for a gripping narrative, so we're in for some good stuff. First, the thumbnail summary. Prescon, son of Saint, is the sixth monarch of Anarquist. He was born in 234, takes the throne in 253, age 19 reigns for only three years until 256 when he dies aged 22. No children. Or did he? We'll get to that later. Prescon has been called the forgettable king not because he was absent-minded but because he's often overlooked in discussions of Aniquistian monarchs. If he's famous for anything he's famous for being hard to remember when anyone tries to list the monarchs of Anquist. Let's have a look at the succession, first of all, how he got to be king, so his path to the throne, if you like. As one of the five children of King Sane, Prescott faced the by now traditional struggle to get the nod as the successor. Toward the end of his father's life, when choosing a successor should have been uppermost in his mind, King Sane was instead deeply into his treasure obsession, and he neglected this essential duty. The result was that when he died, with no succession nominated, it was a matter of either negotiation or open warfare. Cunningly, in the years before King Sain's death, Prescon had actually duped his siblings, so his brothers and sisters, Farfina, Castor, Elemendes, and Sixtus, into spending their time trying to get themselves in charge of their father's treasure – while he, instead, curried favour with the Aniquistian army through the traditional methods of bribing its leaders with promises of preferment, lands and riches if they backed him. When King Sain died suddenly and the treasure disappeared, Prescon's siblings were in no position to jockey for the throne, and Prescon, with his military backing, took the crown in the year 253 at the tender age of 19, while his siblings remained outwitted, outplayed and outlasted. Although Prescon wasn't overly bloodthirsty and vindictive, when he was crowned, his siblings took no chances and scattered, leaving Aniquist when it was clear they had no shot at the throne themselves. Farfina, Castor, Elamendes, Sixtus and Sendia had issues with each other as well, so the notion of banding together in an anti-Prescon cabal didn't occur to them. Instead, they sought sanctuary in various places around the continent, seeking support for prosecuting their claims to the throne of Aniquist. All in the best interest of the nation, of course, nothing to do with revenge or personal ambition. Castor took himself and his household guard to Perrin, a city-state in the south of the continent. We've already mentioned it in series one is a small place, but it had a reputation for scholars and philosophers. It was probably a mistake on his part, uh, thinking he could enlist a quality military force here, as Perrin was an unusually Pacific nation, loath to go to war on any account. Taking someone else's side? Not likely, and certainly not before a long-involved public debate about the nature of aggression and the nature of war. It's said that after five weeks of this, Castor gave up and went elsewhere, but his fate is unknown. His brother Sixtus showed up in the Anaquistian border town of Hallidale, where he took to living as part of a band of outlaws and freelance scale prospectors, trying to make a fortune one way or another. Both were unsuccessful, as for his gambling efforts, the latter leading to him being stabbed while palming dice. He died in 256. Prescon's sister, Elamendis, was more successful in her efforts. She fled to Jallox, the rugged, large island off the far south coast of the continent, and she went looking for distant relatives who might support her in a tilt for the throne. Those of you who've been with the podcast from the beginning might remember that Eucantha Aniquist, the swashbuckling founder of the realm of Aniquist, hailed from Jallox and many of the independent and warring fiefdoms in that mountainous and windswept part of the world, like people there were related to the Aniquist family. Many of the younger offspring in these clans, uh, those who were most unlikely to inherit land or to head war bands, they were only too happy to listen to Lemendis and her promises of land, riches and titles if they'd help her wrest the throne from her black-hearted brother the last probably being a subjective assessment, as most people who knew Prescon described him as grey-hearted at worst, and more likely some sort of wishy-washy beige-hearted. Elamendis managed to assemble something close to an army. A wild and undisciplined mob might be a more accurate description, but it was large. Estimates vary, as they often do in these ancient times. Some scribes report the army to be of many millions. The annals, which were finalised sometime soon after Prescon's death, speak of thousands. Examination of the battle site near the Spring Ford across the Gefo River, some hundred kilometres south of the city of Anaquist, where the Anaquistian forces met the army of Elamendis, suggests that numbers on either side couldn't have reached, say, 10,000 due to the topography, the layout of the land. The warriors from Jalox were brave and individually fierce, but they were no match for the discipline of the Anaquistian troops. Elamendes herself fell in battle, but only after having two horses hacked out from under her, and having the chance to retreat, but refusing. Prescon himself was present at the battle, but he didn't fight. With his staff, he commanded from a nearby ridge, graciously acceding to his generals on matters of strategy, tactics, supply, deployment and the aftermath. He did insist on firm control over the colour of his tent, however, and since no horse would willingly carry his bulk, he had a war wagon constructed for his comfort. Prescon's sister Sendia was only two years old when Prescon became king. Perhaps seeing the way the wind was blowing... Prescon's mother, Queen Adelpha, took the infant back to her hometown of Elbe in the area of the continent that today is known as Kildare. There they lived in obscurity and thus safety. What about Varfina, the oldest of the siblings? There's no indication that she sat back and let the others have a go observing from a distance, but that's how it looks. She took herself to the far north of the continent to the realm of Brel, a prosperous state that crumbled in the 4th century due to ongoing problems with truly scary tropical diseases and also from raids from the people from the large mountainous and steamy island of Visbezili, just to the north. At the time Varthena was there, Brel was prosperous, a trading hub for much of the north of the continent, with ample natural resources. In Aniquist, before she left, Varfina had used her time as a royal princess to learn the trade in magical scales, and the associated financial ins and outs that go with any valuable commodity. The fortune she compiled quite quickly enabled her to live in security in Brel, where Prescon declared that he loved his big sister, who was more than happy for her to live a long way away from Penquist Prescon's mistake in leaving unhappy royal siblings alive after taking the throne later entered the lexicon as Prescon's folly, and a number of monarchs took it not as a jest but as a warning and a lesson one they took to heart, even though his siblings didn't unseat him. The trouble they caused him was a salutary lesson for monarchs in the future. Reign Highlights. Now, some monarchs of Aniquis were good. Some monarchs of Aniquis were bad. Uh, some are lumped in the middle. The mediocre bunch, not bad enough to be bad, not good enough to be good. Halden was one of these. The nicknames he earned through his three-year reign will give you some idea of how he came to be so middling. He hadn't been on the throne long before he was regularly being called King Toad and the royal rump behind his back because of the rapidity with which he put on weight after he put on the crown at the age of 19. Slim when a child, his love of food and drink and general indulgence allied with an abhorrence of anything that looked like exercise meant that he was soon notably corpulent, turned into a big man. He neglected finances, and the military, much to the displeasure of those who had helped to install him on the throne. Infrastructure and foreign relations, yeah, he, he had no time for. He even neglected the annual games, begun 50 years ago by his great-grandfather, King Omir, cutting their budget and generally just letting them peter out. The last Antiquistian games were held in the year 255 and were a shabby, sad affair, With just a few foot races, a wrestling match and no prizes of any kind and no monarch in attendance the joke around Lowtown of the day was that if a pie race had been held Prescon would have been first, second and third the annual boat races on the Geffo River continued through Prescon's reign however but without royal patronage they became a very down at heel affair and the only people who were happy with the day were the bookmakers as usual in his time as king, Prescon showed none of the cleverness and energy he displayed in securing the succession. It was as if once he had the crown, he found truckloads of laurels, spread them around and rested on them. He became more than a gourmet, he became a glutton, eating and drinking with a crowd of sycophantic cronies, only too pleased to encourage sybaritic behaviour. Somewhere in all this, and perhaps in response to some heroic nagging by his chief advisor, Arlen Banthus, Prescon found time to marry. It didn't look very far, despite Banthas' suggestions that useful alliances could be made with other realms through marriage, and Halden settled on Julia Wefton, a member of the aristocratic Wefton family of Lowtown. Julia Wefton was only 17 at the time Prescon nominated her as his bride-to-be in 256, and by then he'd well and truly lost any good looks he may have had. Her reaction was recorded in the grandly titled The Complete History of Aniquist, a quaint 12th-century volume that, despite its title, is really only a very slight collection of gossip in an almost random, non-chronological order. And in this, whereupon first meeting Prescott in person, Julia Wefton demanded that whoever had painted the portrait she'd been shown be banished for falsehood. As an aside, Alan Banthus's nagging didn't do the realm much good, or himself much good either. After some time trying to get Prescott to agree to meet a delegation from Jallox, that Prescott basically didn't want to, the king lost his temper. And Banthus lost his head. In late 254, a series of heavenfalls occurred on a scale unlike anything previously recorded. The modern authority on historical heavenfalls is Dante Tantantan, and in his monumental work Heaven Falls Through History, which is virtually a catalogue of heavenfalls over the centuries, the result of poring over masses and masses of primary sources. He likens the Heaven Falls of 254 to a massive meteor shower, a spectacle able to be seen across the continent for more than a week, with many large strikes being recorded, mostly in the central wilderness, but a scatter of smaller heavenfall objects pounded the entire land in such numbers that the destruction of property was recorded. And, remarkably, one trading ship off the northwestern coast was actually struck and sunk, with the loss of more than a dozen lives. This great heavenfall of 254 caused a prospecting rush, as you can imagine, with an exodus from every city, town and settlement across the continent. Uh, People who were willing to risk danger in the hope of uncovering riches, which is an eternal tale in the world below the war in the heavens. Now, several states tried banning their people from leaving with greater and lesser success, But since Prescon was a descendant of someone who'd not only made a fortune by claiming a heavenfall, but founded a realm because of it, well, he could hardly follow suit. As a result, it's estimated that Aniquist lost nearly a fifth of its population immediately after the Great Heavenfall, and it took decades for its population numbers to recover. Interestingly, no new state or realm eventuated from the Great Heavenfall, and no large artefact or heavenly body part was ever identified. Dante Tantantan points out, however, that the market in scales experienced an up-and-down time over the next half-century, with travellers and merchants coming to Aniquist with huge numbers of scales, the origin of which they were always guarded about. Thus, Aniquist scales had competition, something local traders were unaccustomed to. In the short term, the price of scales dropped precipitously because of the glut, until the Aniquistian traders came to arrangements with those who were importing these very fine scales from elsewhere, after which the price stabilised due to, shall we say, the control on sales. Was it a monopoly? Perhaps, and one achieved by tactics where the words strong arm wouldn't be inappropriate. Shall we say, look, they were robust traders, the Aniquistians, and always quick learners, especially on how to deal with competition. And here's an aside, and I hope you've come to realise that in this exploration of the world below the war in the heavens, asides present themselves all over the place, and I truly love following them. So, in this aside, the 10-year period of the mass importation of scales to Aniquists most likely from the great heaven falls and the resulting price drop this put scales into the hands of many people who'd never been able to afford them previously and this led to a mini boom in scale related art and notably scale enhanced musical instruments of which only a few still exist today but they're legendary in the tone, timbre, and effect their music has on audiences. Highly sought after, of course. Magical theory and practice, too, benefited from more access to scales, leading to more experimentation, and several advances were made not just in the hypogeum and in the official magic schools, but in what you might call freelance or even amateur experimenters, risking much to satisfy their intellectual curiosity. Some of the principles of scale-based communication were actually established at this time, even if the understanding was crude and occasionally muddle-headed. Another development that arose due to the Great Heavenfall was a semi-mystical group in Aniquist that eventually adopted the name Heaven Watchers. And it's probably a good time to introduce them now as they'll bob up a number of times in subsequent episodes. The objects plummeting from the heavens in the Great Heavenfall of 254 could be seen both day and night with the naked eye. Now, we have to understand that knowledge apprehension of lenses and optics didn't occur until late in the 18th century in the world below the war in the heavens. Another sign of how slow scientific and technological development was in this magical world. But magical enhancement of sight was something altogether different. The temple naturally saw some advantage to it in monitoring the skies for heavenfalls, And over the next decade or so, a group grew out of collaboration between the temple and the various parts of the Hypogeum, leading to what began as an informal band of interested souls who were keen on observing the skies, watching for heavenfalls. Once they had the imprimatur of the temple and the backing of at least some of the sections of the Hypogeum, they became more formalised as the heaven watchers and they harnessed crude scale-based telescopic devices, viewing devices, really, to survey the skies for anything. The heaven watchers, as a band, as a group, grew quickly, and the order soon gathered a touch of glamour about it. They were the guardians of the heavens, in some minds, and the way to riches, in other minds. After all, a discreet and timely word in the right quarter could give a party a head start on claiming a fabulous heavenfall. This possibility caused corruption, of course, especially in the early days of the Order, and it was never fully free of this taint. The Heaven Watchers expanded greatly through the 4th and 5th centuries in the world below the War of the Heavens, establishing themselves in every major population centre. And some of their towers survive today, notable architectural landmarks, A particularly fine example was built in the capital city of the long gone realm of Brel on a hill at the edge of the city limits. It was said to be the tallest building in the world at that stage and by quite a considerable margin. It was a round tower with a rotating observation platform. It attracted heaven watchers from across the continent, and its stairways spiralling up both inside and outside the tower were an irresistible challenge for the younger heaven watchers to complete without having to stop for breath. Renowned almost as a stairway to heaven itself, the Brel Tower identified a number of major heavenfalls in its 300-year existence and Dante Tantantan uses its records for a substantial part of his work. Heaven Watcher towers were also built away from cities, and these were where the truly serious Heaven Watchers were said to base themselves, while those who were more interested in the politics of the Order and the relationship with the temple, they were eager for a metropolitan base. Nothing to do with the luxuries offered in the city posting, of course. The Heaven Watchers waxed and waned over the centuries before experiencing a long period of decline And disappearing in the 12th century. Or not. Rumours insist that this very secretive group has enclaves that still exist in remote areas, while other rumours say that the temple shields the order from scrutiny and uses its finding for its own ends. More on the Heaven Watchers in later episodes. Now, on to Prescon's death. He had only been married for six months when he died from apoplexy in late 256 at the age of only 22. Something internal bursting, thanks to the rage he flew into when the kitchen ran out of Lark's tongues. And this left the dynasty for the first time with no direct heir. His wife, Queen Julia, was notably stoic at the news of his demise and soon after retired to a country estate. She never married again, but she had a lot of fun. Prescon's advisory council faced a problem that had never been faced in the history of Aniquist before. What to do when a monarch dies without an heir? For some time, several of them jockeyed for power, all trying to prove their connection to the Aniquist family. The obvious choice among them was Juno Craxus, who was descended from Pantaleon, the brother of King Omer and Prescon's great-granduncle. Wisely, though, she made it clear that she wasn't seeking the throne and would refuse to accept the crown, even if it was thrust upon her. The matter was resolved a week after Prescon's death, with the arrival of his sister, Varfina who had crossed the continent from Brel in the far north, where she'd made her fortune in the scale trade, as we mentioned earlier. She arrived in Aniquist with her own small army and installed herself in a large palace in Lowtown, which she'd bought some time before from Juno Craxus. It was an impressive building, but not notably beautiful. More, More of a fortress than a mansion, really. Importantly, it came with its own troops. With them on top of the numbers she brought from Brel, who were camped ominously outside the city walls, Prescon's advisory council, knowing what side their bread was buttered on, declared her the monarch apparently without delay, and Prescon's reign was well and truly in the past. And that was it for Prescon, the first of the youthful monarchs. Not a good king, not a bad king, mostly A forgettable king. This has been The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell.